0: Hey, Anna, uh, I'm sitting here with Anna George, who is doing her research out of the Oxford Internet Institute uh, at the University of Oxford, and uh, we had all these technical challenges trying to get this recording up and running. <laughs> Super hilarious, but some of what we're going to talk about today involves uh, technology and data science. Uh, so, but actually, and I'm I'm really excited to talk to you because I feel like um, you know, I'm, I'm studying, I'm a political science undergrad, but I, uh, I have a tech technology background. So I'm, I'm really excited to, um, to discuss like your research, some of the things that have been catching your attention around like, like misinformation, the Ukraine war, or, uh, for the context of this discussion, what we're going to call white power narratives, uh, so I think a, a good place to start, Anna, is maybe you could give us a little bit more context on like your pathway to the academia and decided to study your research, uh, you know, what you're currently focused on.
1: Hi, Christopher, thank you for having me. Um, ironically, we both had technology issues. <laughs> Uh, so my pathway into academia um, is a bit different, um, although it sounds like you're a political scientist who also uses technology. Uh, so it's funny that a lot of people are now merging the two disciplines, um, but at the time I started it, it was quite new. So I have a social psychology background. I studied psychology, sociology and statistics in undergrad. I went to undergrad with a few different ideas of what I wanted to do, first a social worker, then a biblical studies major, and then I fell in love with social psychology. I was sitting in a statistics class that focused on social psychology research, and I was just at all the problems that social psychologists were trying to solve. It seemed like many of the social problems that many people were perplexed by at the time there were people doing actual research investigating these pressing issues. So I wanted to learn more. So I started a social psychology master's degree at Illinois State University. And while I was there, I realized the field of social psychology was trying to incorporate more computer science methods into its work. And I had always wanted to go abroad, um, mostly because Harry Potter, I thought maybe I wanted to go to England. (laughs) Um, So I knew that they had one year master's programs in England. So I looked to see if anywhere had a master's program that was focused on computational social sciences. And that was the same year that the Oxford Internet Institute had created a social data science program and i was like oh this seems like fate but of course it was oxford and someone coming from a small town that had never dreamed of going to an elite university i just submitted an application and didn't think it would go anywhere but I ended wow. up getting accepted. Um, then I joined the PhD program and that's where I'm at right now. It's in the PhD program, researching some of the pressing social issues of our times.
0: That's amazing. And so like, are you saying that early on what you were thinking about was like how to take how to combine maybe some of the more technical or like hard science elements to social sciences? that kind of like you mentioned computer science
1: yeah exactly so I think I all because I fell in love with the field through a statistics class I always liked the more hard science side of social sciences so at that time I was learning experimental methods and the scientific method and how that applied to the social sciences and how to come up with concrete solutions or to understand social phenomena. There was actually a research process behind it. And then that developed into more technical sides, um, especially as I now study the internet of needing to learn computer science um, to answer some of the questions that I have and that many others
0: have. Yeah, it's so cool. I think um, the first place where I started to kind of cross the social sciences with some of the harder sciences was around like, uh, the idea of digital authoritarianism. And, uh, mm-hmm. I'm positive that some of the research I was looking at earlier this year came out of the Oxford In- internet Institute and some other, uh, uh, departments or entities around the globe. Uh, so one thing I noticed was, uh, like, a lot of the studies on digital authoritarianism, for example, uh, use the political science, frameworks, uh, but very rarely like, uh, take a deeper look at um, the technology. So that's really cool. And then I guess, like, in terms of uh, what your research focuses on, Maybe we could dig into that. I'm sure I have plenty of questions for
1: Very cool that you've been interested in some of these issues. Um, yeah, <laughs> unfortunately, the topics that we're interested in become more and more relevant. So... Uh, Kind of, so my background when I first started in the field of social psychology is I studied political polarization online and I wanted to help those that didn't, didn't mean to be divisive but found themselves becoming polarized with people who they would normally have relationships with, such as friends and families. So I started to explore why this was and looked at how political discussions have moral roots. Uh, So some of the political stances that we have, we see as a moral issue and um, can become offended if someone holds other moral values higher than we do. But uh, over the years, that's shifted to becoming um, to look at those who are deliberately trying to be divisive online. So now I say my focus is making the internet a safe space by studying those who are trying to make it an unsafe space. So to do that, I'm looking at, as I said, what makes it unsafe. Uh, My work explores online hate groups, misinformation, trolls, um, and other parts of tech platforms that put consumers at risk. Um, So, we talked a little bit about or you mentioned the white power movement and that's something we can dig into later so one of the hate groups that i look at are pro-white extremists um and then also misinformation that's been spread about covid and the war
0: it's so interesting uh the white power narratives or like like so i i've written about nationalism from different Mm -hmm angles uh and so thinking about like white power narratives and how they are distributed online today um or like some of the hate some of the different areas of the internet that you're uh, describing uh sometimes i'm surprised what we have to talk about in politics in 2022 and Mm -hmm. uh Uh, One of the things you mentioned when we were speaking earlier is like some of these hard right movements that are shaping up in U.S. and uh, Canada, France, maybe other countries. But so maybe you could frame like what white power narratives are and then Mm -hmm. uh, and then discuss like, uh, uh, I guess, what you're what you're finding or what the implications of these kinds of narratives are
1: yeah definitely so for anyone listening the term white power is a term i and a few others use to group together different racist extremist groups who are pro right pro sorry pro white um, and the intersection with politics you might know a bit more about than I do. Uh, So I know that Trump was the first candidate that white nationalists endorsed. They liked that he focused on race because those in the white power movement see race as a very important issue, but um, it's hard to please extremists. So they saw themselves as essential to getting him elected. And when he was elected, they felt like he ignored them and uh, didn't take what they uh, said, on the issue of race far enough um, but it was still a big moment in bringing them into the limelight as was the Charlottesville uh, riot um, so I do study a bit less of the political impact and more about how they get others to join their movement and where these people exist online um, so a lot because I'm just a year into this work it's a lot of a theoretical understanding right now. Um, From reading past scholars such as um, J.M. Berger, I understand that the recruitment and radicalization process goes something like this. So another definition that I should probably define as extremism. Um, It's a bit hard to define, but Berger says that a component of extremism is the existence of an in-group so, a group which shares common features. And as you can guess in the white power movement, it's their racial identity. And um, extremists also have the existence of an outgroup. Uh, so, those to them who are non white, and they see the outgroup and the outgroup's existence as a threat to the in group. And as these extremists become radicalized, they increasingly hold negative views towards that outgroup, which eventually leads. Extremists to the conclusion that hostile action towards an outgroup is necessary. Mm. So, yeah, I it kind of takes a, I, I want. I realize I'm saying this in very academic terms, but obviously, you oh, know, that this is very very sad things. Um, and especially the Buffalo shooting just happened, and I'm well aware that this is um a quite sensitive topic for lots of people, and really really sad
0: um but i do think your observations and your analysis your research i think it's that is equally as important uh uh especially as uh you know some of these movements online have been more disruptive than people could Mm -hmm. have imagined or you know as uh uh people have Use the internet to like achieve collective action in good ways and bad ways um, so, so I, I appreciate hearing your perspective on this um,
1: yeah so the those in the white power movement have been called like uh, digital innovationists because ever since the internet existed they've unfortunately used it to spread their movement so in 1995 or so was when the first hate site Stormfront was created and they've always um, gone on to implement themselves in the current trends and the current platforms. Of course, some social media sites are trying to fight them off of it, but we keep finding them here online. So I I wonder how do those that are finding people online because become part of these groups right because we look at them and we see what they stand for and it seems like any person should be able to say no I I don't want to be part of that group Um, but for some reason they are able to recruit people and I I want to understand what about their tactics and about the internet make it so that they can um, be able to recruit these people online so we know a few things. Uh, we know that there's some people who have a soft narrative, um, and they are at the forefront spreading um, uh, information that relates to uh, what they believe, but in a soft way. They don't outright say, oh, we're racist, and we hate um, people who are don't look like us instead, they say, "Oh, every culture should be able to celebrate their own race. don't you agree with that, or if someone's having a hard time finding a job, they say, Oh, immigrants are the reason that you aren't being able to find a job, so they kind of play off people in that way, and then they slowly uh what the group calls red pill them um which comes from the terminology of the matrix where Uh, Morpheus offers the main character to either take the red or the blue pill and the blue pill means you can go back to seeing life in this fake facade or the red pill opens your eyes to the truth. So they believe they have this truth that they need to share and the more a person spends online reading their messages, the slow, slowly and slowly it becomes more and more radical and the person goes through different stages of assessing. If this group is helping them solve their own internal problems, and if the group is uh, doing enough to stop the out group. Um, And if they assess, if they're bought into this narrative and they assess that the group isn't doing enough, um, that's when we get the lone wolf attackers because then they take things into their own hands. So they're not really lone wolf. I think that's starting to become more and more known because they had this community around them. So I would argue the buffalo shooter uh didn't act alone they were part of a community and in their manifesto they list everyone that influenced them um but yeah so <laughs> it's a really sad process
0: yeah it's, it's um <clears throat> it's very different uh type of organization than like, a, like a islamist group or some type of terrorist entity in the middle east or in africa uh because, you know, like a terrorist organization has a hierarchical power structure, it, it probably has a pretty solid revenue streams, uh, whether that's like stealing resources, taking over resources, or distributing resources on black markets. Uh, so when, when we look at these, um, these lone wolf actors that have come out of these kind of extreme... Uh, groups online uh, I mean I feel like they are they seem less predictable uh, does, does is your research namely focusing on like the pathway that they take to uh, like participate in these movements or the pathway that they might take uh, and then some kind of calculation on like the probability of violence or like like how are you looking at uh like the end result of white power narratives
1: yeah you tap into something really important there and that the structure of these movements might be a bit different because it, it used to be termed as a leaderless movement uh there are some different leaders of different white power groups but there's still this idea that someone can move up in the ranks or commit attacks um, on their own so sometimes it's hard to know who to hold accountable so I think my research lies in um, looking at how can we identify who is active in this that we that People people who are active in this that would otherwise be going under the radar. So what I mean by that is there are people who we know, such as Richard Spencer, that are active in this movement and leaders and are being watched and are being taken off of mainstream social media sites. So I monitor what him and other leaders are saying and the narratives that they're putting out. So different ideas such as the Great Replacement Theory or White Genocide and the way that they're talking about those ideas to then um, capture those narratives in a quantitative way. And then I run my model on mainstream social media sites to see who is bringing over these leaders' ideas back onto the mainstream and are they continually doing it? Can we then say that they're activists for the movements? How do they become more and more radical? Uh, So right now, it's more in the descriptive stage of understanding the presence of where these people exist online, how big is the movement, um, who is buying more into the movement. Um, I haven't thought about it, but I think we could even make the case of following those that get flagged over time to see if they are becoming more and more radical because we can see a change in language of someone when they become more of an activist, of spreading um, their, their ideas and narratives um, more online.
0: Yeah, it's, it's fascinating too, because I think for like some of the people that may be listening, uh, these narrative yeah. distributed in tight circles or physically? Uh, like on paper or in the mail, or you know with with uh, with phone calls or uh, you know in other groups where people might have uh, shared interests and then find that oh yeah let 's talk about white uh, uh, power or like uh, white nationalist uh, styles of thinking, so it 's fascinating that you can observe this now on the internet uh and i guess the other thing that can be challenging about the internet is it does make information move more quickly and uh and it does definitely uh help anyone that wants to reach an audience reach a broader audience if they have some technical capabilities but is like so outside of uh the kind of white power narratives and maybe we'll come back to this in a little bit but What are you looking at in the area of misinformation? How does that kind of fit into your research as well?
1: Yeah, uh, so just a quick comment that you're right, that this unfettered access does become problematic because one becomes radicalized the more they engage with these narratives. And since they can have theoretically 24 Seven access to narratives, then it can speed up the radicalization process. Um, but yeah, so turning to misinformation, so my research <laughs> bounces a bit all over the place in different venues of online harms. So I focus less on how white power spreads misinformation, and I'm more focused on how misinformation was spread on social media during some of the current phenomena that's occurring in the world, um, which happens to be COVID and the Ukraine war.
0: Okay, and um, what are you seeing there? How are you approaching that?
1: Yeah, so I think people have talked about misinformation related to COVID-19 a lot. So I'll briefly go over some of the background for anyone that might not be familiar, and then introduce a research study that hopefully provides um, insights that hasn't been talked about or over talked about. Uh, so during COVID-19, I would study the disinformation that was being put out each week by state-backed outlets or by low-quality news sources, which are sources with dubious practices such as not fact checking and they typically have an agenda that they're writing to. Um, So some of these low quality news sources were also anti-vax or vaccine. um, Anti-vax individuals uh, who played as if they were journalists, um, such as the site Children's Health Defense, who's owned by an anti-vax leader. and we looked at what information they were putting out into social media each week and usually it mimicked a lot of the same um, reporting that fact-checked or higher quality news sources were putting out but they would use more divisive language to try to play off people's emotions when they read um, news sources from these so uh, alternative sources um, and foreign state media after vaccines were released, we noticed a sort of vaccine diplomacy. So foreign state media promoting their own country's vaccines and over emphasizing at times or speculating other countries, the problems with other countries vaccines. Uh, so one thing we did to understand this is we looked at how foreign state media sponsored by Russia and China were talking about Western vaccines and found that they were spreading divisive news on uh, Western vaccines. So, for example, at the time, I think this might have been in February, these outlets spread misinformation that the a AstraZeneca- vaccine wasn't safe for over 65s, um, which was problematic because that was the current group that was eligible to receive the vaccine in the UK at the time. Um, Or they over report on side effects, which made it hard for people to legitimately weigh the side effects that do come with vaccines. And I, I, I think that's important to note, that there are side effects to vaccines. And when we say anti-vax, we don't mean those that are vaccine hesitant. So vaccine hesitant individuals are those that are trying to weigh these legitimate concerns and doubts, whereas anti-vax individuals are those with an agenda to be against any type of vaccine. Um, interestingly, a researcher did uh, infiltrate a meeting early on of anti-vax leaders before the COVID-19 vaccine was even released. And these leaders were talking about how they were going to use the COVID-19 pandemic to propagate anti-vaccine narratives. Um, So one thing that I think hasn't been talked about as much and that I was part of, um, so I'm part of a group called the Program on Democracy and Technology, and we conducted a research study uh, to talk about how anti-vax leaders monetize their efforts. Um, so I can dig into it a bit more, but overall we found that um, 59 anti-vax websites monetized um, their anti-vax narratives by either selling alternative health supplements. They were saying, okay, the vaccine doesn't work, but it's and big pharma is just after your money, but instead buy my health supplement and this will protect you from COVID-19. Or a lot of them asked for donations for their movements and played off of those that they made scared of vaccines and said, okay, we're telling you the truth. Instead, give money to us um, so that we can continue our mission of... Um, spreading these alternative facts (laughs) or fake news about vaccines. Hmm. Um, The one I found really interesting, so I mentioned Children's Health Defense, which is owned by Robert Kennedy Jr. And his uh, anti-vax group is actually considered a charity, so they're able to have tax-free donations and have a tax break because they're, they're considered a charity so they're even on amazon smile so their followers can make purchases on amazon that benefits them which i think when i yeah i thought it was wild when i saw that
0: it, it's crazy and uh, it's it's uh, for a per- personal anecdote uh I grew up in a really conservative community and I haven't lived there in more than a decade now, but uh, I still have a lot of those loose ties on Facebook and uh, speaking to the kind of like uh, misinformation uh, there is still so much misinformation on Facebook. In fact, I think, um, I think a lot of people trivialize uh, that statement. Uh Like I can see these uh, I can see these profiles like, you know, here's this random profile. It's got 25 friends, uh, but it started a group in March of 2022. Uh, uh, who knows out there distributing the content, but the content uh, without looking at it like qualitatively, quantitatively, Is designed to target a specific kind of thinking uh, and then uh, is full of half-truths or no truths but people uh, readily comment on or share this content into uh, because for whatever reason it it validates maybe their existing beliefs or it it validates uh, discussions that maybe they've had privately with friends or uh, you know whatever it is, and there's this circle of people that are mostly retired military veterans uh like mostly christian uh maybe in their fifties and sixties and i don't I don't know if they see how hateful they're being uh but they uh, are really hyper-focused right now on providing critiques to black athletes in the United States that have uh, expressed any type of uh, political dissent and uh, and they say uh, we should throw these people out of this country or that uh, they have no right to our flag or you know uh, just like really interesting stuff that blows my mind because uh, again, like we, we research this stuff and I'm like, Oh geez. Uh, one of the communities that I grew up in is like highly susceptible to, uh, misinformation on, on COVID or, you know, some of these other, uh, narratives, even if it's like, just like, a, like basic political analysis. Uh, and I, I've even looked at like, um, like, uh, deep fakes. And, and the way that those are being implemented, uh, whether it's audio or audio and video as a means of spreading misinformation. Um, so, so it's very interesting, but what are you seeing, um, what are you seeing around the Ukraine war and how misinformation is playing a role there?
1: Yes, so first to comment on your story, um, sorry, that you have to be exposed to that one thing (laughs) that i realized early on is that not everyone has the same online experience so the problems in society get perpetuated online and um those that are minorities tend to experience more harassment and hate online and that's just simply not okay I grew up in a similar community to you, so I'm from a small town in Kansas where <laughs> missing disinformation. Yeah. We're neighbors. Uh, are you I'm from in Colorado.
0: Colorado. Yeah, oh, very nice. Yeah.
1: Well uh, <laughs> at least you have mountains. Um, <laughs> okay. I, I think <laughs> I think people from Colorado uh, for those listening that might not know, are Brad to hate Kansan, Kansas. Oh yeah, and... <laughs> yeah.
0: Certainly, I... All, it, nothing matters until you get to Kansas City. That's how I always. <laughs> seventy.
1: Uh, I'm three hours from <laughs> I seventy, so I'm even more in oh. the places you never. I'm on highway fifty. Um, so. Uh, oh wow. Uh, of course, I haven't been home in a long time, but sure. uh, yeah, gr- grew up going to Colorado because I have relatives there and they let me know how much better Colorado is. Yeah. But yeah, so um, and then it's interesting that you notice the military connection. So there's someone named Dr. Catherine Below that wrote a book called Bring the War Home and talked about how after the Vietnam War, It seemed that veterans had become more nationalistic, and what that meant to them was white white nationalism, and they seemed to start trying to attack what they saw as invaders in their homeland, just as they had done um, abroad. So, yeah, it's uh, yeah. uh, I live in the UK now, uh, so sometimes it's nice. Uh, Of course, there's racial issues here as well. But in the U.S. in particular, it seems like everything becomes quite political quite fast. Um, So the the kneeling on the football field and stuff like that, it's nice to live in a community where people uh, automatically see (laughs) the problems with um, political, uh, like the politicalization of that and people attacking them and saying to go home um it's yeah it's sometimes it's baffling from the outside to try to understand these people um but yeah i grew up in a similar community like my community still believes that obama is a muslim so definitely misinformation has always been there um but yeah so um to talk about Uh, the war a bit i'm sorry
0: Oh, I was just going to add, I've had some conversations with people back home weeks ago, and I still hear like very uh, Mm anti-globalist, like I still hear anti-Muslim sentiment. You know, I'm actually, Mm -hmm. actually, um, as we're getting a little bit older, Anna, uh, I'm surprised at the, like, I feel like if we, if we use your data science skills And we tried to, like, create a chronology of, like, when certain narratives were installed in society. Kind kind of of like like how we could see, like, like, frequency and utilization of a word, word, for example. Uh, Yeah. We could see, like, when the narrative emerged and the intensity of that emergence. How long it exists. And so I'm listening to, uh, like... uh, Baby Boomers, uh, which my dad was actually in the silent generation. He was born in 39, but I'm listening to baby boomers and people who are older and I'm listening to these like narratives that have been installed in their thinking. And, uh, I'm, I have some too, even though I'm trying to become more aware of that, but but it actually is mind boggling to me that like legitimately fictional narratives are, um, at the foundation of, uh, you know, a lot of people's beliefs or perceptions or like are used to analyze, uh, I don't know, society and uh, it, it blows my mind like we could maybe look at like, like the 60s through today, and maybe every decade we could see like, oh, this narrative is here, this narrative is here and then here's the dynamic that's created. Oh, and now we're actually still talking like this 40, 50, 60 years later. Uh, So so it kind of blows my mind. And I think like for, again, this is just my opinion because I'm not doing research on the level that you are, but I think that these narratives uh, leave like these gaping opportunities for effective distribution of misinformation. And I, I don't know that the people who are... I guess, supposed victims of misinformation understand the sophistication of the apparatus that, you know, is influencing or tapping into their thinking. So I I just wanted to add that.
1: Yeah, definitely. Um, So the anti-global elite narrative, I think, is one, is, that hold that that's one reason why they believed COVID misinformation, right? Is because there was this idea that global elites were behind um, COVID-19 or that they were that using this to become authoritarian. So if you already believe that something is suspicious or that the government is untrustworthy, then why would you believe them when they tell you that there is a pandemic happening? Um, and then regarding narratives, it, it is really interesting how groups of generations were taught to believe different things. Um, and one thing I see in the white power movement is sometimes these narratives become recycled. So in that movement, there's always been this idea of white victimhood and that they're the real victims in society and they start to change the world views of those that are potentially going to become followers to see themselves as victims although we know that white people myself included in that category are some of the most privileged people in society or are the most privileged in society so uh, they they used to um, have this narrative that white people were um, victims because they were losing power and the way they would talk about it was quite clearly and openly racist and then now instead it's being couched as just having nationalism for your own um, racial identity and they try to cover up the racist aspects of it
0: it's really i'm definitely going to keep paying attention to this but i know i interrupted you because I think we're about to transition to uh, the Ukraine war.
1: Yeah, uh, so the Ukraine war, um, so it's it's definitely on the global radar um, now, but I would actually say and those living in Ukraine and Russia would say that the war started back in 2014. So I think that's important um, to remember as we talk about the history of Mis and disinformation in in Russia. So I don't think we defined it, but misinformation is when someone spreads misleading information without um, the intent to be deliberate, or we don't know their intention. Whereas disinformation is when someone is being deliberate in their spreading of misleading information, and it's often hard to tell if someone is intentionally spreading misleading information, but in the case of Russia, and especially during this war, it seems to be quite clear that they're intentionally spreading misinformation. And so that would make it disinformation. It's becoming quite clear that they're intentional their spread of misleading information. When I first started studying disinformation a few years ago Russia was almost always the example given on how disinformation is used at war so even before the internet they were creating disinformation such as making fake war documents for the other side to find to confuse them so they weren't quite sure what was happening in Russia there's a book that's called nothing is true and everything is possible which sums up the information reality in Russia so under Putin, Russian citizens have been subjected to disinformation for many years. There was actually a person, um, I'm so bad at name pronunciations, but Vladislav Savak that was behind the current tactics of how to spread disinformation to Russian citizens. Um, So he was removed in office in 2020 and no one quite knows why but he's worked with Putin closely for many years manipulating the people and spreading Russian propaganda uh it was actually it's been said that his inspiration was from reality tv shows that one day he was on the set of a reality tv show and saw how those were manipulated and there wasn't really it wasn't really reality tv because there was a manipulation to it and that inspired him to do the same with uh the russian people to give a propaganda um, appearance of russia and its leaders um, but yeah so russia's disinformation tactics have been developed for years um, and When Russia started the war back in 2014, they were spreading some of the same narratives that we're seeing today so that they're trying to protect Ukraine um, from the Nazis or that Ukraine is bombing itself and even when the war first started. I was looking at how state backed news sources were talking about the war. Sometimes they recycled some of their old articles with disinformation that they wrote back in 2014 and were putting it back on the front pages of their websites. Um, so, another thing I looked at early on um, in March is. I was looking at how chinese and russian state-backed media along with some other state-backed media um what they were reporting on regarding the ukraine war and what topics uh, were emerging so my colleagues and i looked at english news articles um, from these outlets and then conducted topic modeling to see what the overall themes were of the reporting that were coming out of chinese and russian state-backed media yeah this
0: topic Is topic modeling some type of like natural language processing or?
1: Yeah. um, Sorry, I live in a bubble.
0: (laughs) No, that's okay. uh, (laughs) uh,
1: let me know if I need to define anything else. So it's kind of a thematic analysis of sorts. So because so many news articles are released every day, what we were doing is grouping together news articles based on keywords and then seeing what uh, the groupings, what the themes of the groupings were. So um, we were seeing themes such as when they started talking about the idea that the U.S. military had bio labs or um, that the U.S. and NATO were to blame for the war, the, that, that thematic analysis emerged from topic modeling where we were grouping together the articles based on uh, the words that were used in the articles.
0: Okay. That's helpful. Uh,
1: Yeah. Um, So, yeah. So early on, we were looking at what these news outlets were reporting on. And as I just said, some of them were saying that the U.S. and NATO are to blame for the war or the biolabs theory. And China um, had its own reports saying that they were neutral in the war. But we also found that they were spreading a lot of the same narratives at a high proportion as the Russian outlets were spreading. So they were also posting a lot of articles, as many as Russia in some cases, on how the US and NATO are to blame for the war. And then after a lot of Russian state-backed media got taken off of mainstream sites, the users of social media would then go to Chinese state-backed outlets to read about the war, which those outlets were sometimes just propagating the Russian narratives. Um, So we were seeing who out there was trying to spread this pro-Russia propaganda. Uh, One of my friends and colleagues, Marcel, uh, also looked at how Russian and Chinese diplomats on Twitter were also spreading pro-Russian propaganda to their followers.
0: It's so interesting too, because I feel like for average people, it's almost impossible to like validate sources or understand the I guess we'll call it information ecosystem and all the you know actors that are involved in creating these uh, creating the myths and disinformation and so forth. Uh, so are you are you looking at like have you, like in any of the groups or think tanks or any of the conversations that you're having at the uh, university, is anybody like looking at building solutions or different methods of intervention or like, what does, what do what those discussions sound like?
1: Yeah, so. So I'm under the belief that no single intervention will be enough, especially as these tactics develop. Um, In terms of combating misinformation, both Gordon Pennycook and Sander van der Linden are doing great work on showing um, how telling others about the tactics of misinformation helps them to be able to uh, assess for themselves if the news that they're reading is high quality or not, or to think for themselves, if the news they're reading could be trying to mislead them. Um, so they, they're they studying how we can nudge people to start thinking about accuracy, which then helps them to um, self-monitor almost, um, from uh, I'll, 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 I'll re-say that sentence so you don't have to cut as much. Um, so <laughs> um, yeah, so Gordon Pennycook and Sandra VanderLinen are doing research on how people can self-monitor the type of news that they're reading. And to, they're doing this by either nudging people to think of accuracy, or launching campaigns which show the different tactics that misinformation uses, such as trying to play off anger and using divisive words so that people can be equipped with how to themselves um, determine what might be misleading content. Um, In terms of harmful communities, uh, one misperception is that free speech allows someone to say and do anything online. And I think that's why this issue is so prominent because I think it's really important to have free speech. And I think that that's one thing that's important to others, but that doesn't mean that you're immune from the consequences. So some countries such as the UK are coming up with online safety bills, which are trying to um, bring some regulation into the online world. Just as we know, you can't harass someone offline You shouldn't be able to harass them online and for some reason that's been allowed in certain spaces, Uh, so they're trying to develop laws that would hold people accountable and also to give users some uh, more access to who can. be allowed to comment in their online space. So we see on Twitter now there's this feature where you can block anyone that you're not following from replying to you. In the UK safety bill, they're trying to pass it so that anyone that's not a verified user or is anonymous, you can say that they're not allowed to comment on your content. And that might help reduce some of the trolling. Um, of course, it's a, definitely a tricky balance, and I think technology companies need to be held more responsible and to do more to make sure that victims are safeguarded, and that when they are designing these interventions, to talk to the victims of um, harassment to see what would be most helpful to them, um, because sometimes they they uh, face. So I can't remember who told me this, um, but for example when um people were spreading the uh nudes of unconsensually spreading nudes of women online facebook's solution was okay if you send us the nude photos we'll find where they are online and stop them and they're like why why would we trust (laughs) you Mm -hmm. to do this and that that was an example of if they would have included the victims in the discussion of how they were going to handle the spread of illegal content, they could have probably came up with either a better solution than something that would re-victimize them, or um, they could have developed trust within the community. Uh, So I think one thing is technology companies need to start talking more to the victims of these crimes uh, to come up with solutions together. yeah, but I'm glad that several countries are investing in making the online world a safer place. And I, I, social media platforms get a lot of criticisms, and I do have my own criticisms. But it seems like since the pandemic, they're at least having more pressure from the public and seem to be trying to do more things um, to help. Of course, I think sometimes their financial incentives cover up the good-heartedness that they try to play out. But I'm glad that there's more people trying to solve these pressing issues that we've talked about today.
0: Yeah, I agree. I have a dystopic view of where technology's capabilities are going. Uh, but like one of the research proposals I put together this last semester was on artificial intelligence and its impact on the uh the organization of private technology companies and governments and uh, I feel like uh, people oversimplify like they're like well any technology used to deal harm uh, but now we have these technologies that have these like uh, predictive workloads and uh, are uh, running on top of uh, event People we'll say if it's in like behavior hey. analytics and the applications are broadening. So like the same technology that somebody might use to run an influence campaign. Facebook but, might be, uh, uh, another company, uh, that has a technology that, you know, helps banks get their customers to, uh, sooner, you know, or, uh, you know, one technology, might prevent people from accessing certain parts of the internet when they're at work and then another technology might prevent citizens from accessing large parts of the internet or may increase the costs for for citizens to uh, access large parts of the internet or you know if google or facebook needs this data rich profile or even jp morgan or american express needs this data rich profile on individuals yes they may be using it to sell their products but in china they may use that data rich profile on their citizens to shape their behavior and interactions uh, uh uh with the government or on the internet or with other citizens and uh so i i guess i'm a little bit more how i see uh, these technologies, technologies and, and how they're being, you know, I, I would hope, hope that, that. Uh, you know, we still get to see benefits from these tools and then also maybe uh, since that technologies have allowed people to create, uh, you yep. know, you know, become less intense, but I know it's not an academic discussion, but I'm not optimistic. Uh, I think people will continue to make lots of money and uh, certain governments uh, will become more effective at uh, controlling and regulating space online. I don't know what that's going to look like in in the UK, for example, or in the United States. Uh, But yeah, it's super fascinating. So I'm... And I'm very glad to have you uh, on in this conversation with me. I guess, um, do you have like final comments? And then also maybe you could give everyone an idea of like the best place to, to find you online if they want to follow your work or are interested in uh, getting more information on you.
1: Yeah, so thanks for sharing your thoughts. Uh, I think what is an academic discussion is some of the behavioral interventions that we talk about, some of them are being banned from being researched more or uh, not without a heavy consideration because they can be used to, by harmful people to manipulate others. So what responsibility do we have as researchers to make sure that our work isn't being used in um, a bad way or to manipulate? I do still think that there does need to be some rules and regulations online because uh, right now the people online don't represent everybody's views. We know that different populations are on Facebook and Twitter and that they're not representative of all of society. And if we have these harmful people who are running online spaces, um, they're, they're going to be moving people off. So then uh, more people aren't going to be able to be represented online. And as the world becomes more digital, we want to make sure that there are these spaces where people can freely express um, themselves online. But it's definitely a tricky balance. Um, and the pe- we need to trust that those making the rules have the citizens' um, best intentions in mind. Um, but I'm really glad that you invited me on. It's been great to hear more about your thoughts and your backgrounds it sounds like we have a lot of overlap and thank you for allowing me to share mine you can find me at anna ray george on both instagram and twitter that's at a n n a r a e g o r g e and that's on twitter um and instagram
0: and next time we talk maybe we'll talk about your comedy
1: (laughs) Yeah, that didn't get um, brought up, but I've been trying to do comedy about my work, which is obviously quite tricky to talk about these deep subjects and um, quite emotional subjects. But I think it's important uh, to dismantle uh, the ivory towers that academia hides behind and to try to make more people aware of these pressing issues um, and what's going on.
0: Thanks, Anna. I hope that we get to talk again.
1: Sounds great. Thanks, Christopher.